Welcome to another episode of the Enter the Bible podcast, where you can get answers or at least reflections on everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but were afraid to ask. I'm Katie Langston. And I'm Catherine Schifferdecker. And today on the podcast, we are delighted to welcome our special guest, Esau McCauley. Esau is a professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, um, a guest opinion columnist for the New York Times, uh, and author of the book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. And we are so delighted to have you with us. Thanks for being here, Esau. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So the question that we want to talk about uh, today is uh, related to the topic of your book. So your book, again, is called Reading While Black. Um, do people of color read the Bible differently than white people? I realize that it sounds like yeah, a kind of stark question, question yeah. right? But yeah, I, I, I want to I make a couple of, I want to say a couple of things. Is one thing is to understand that like, I don't think that black people are magical. They're like, there's this idea that the skin color produces readings. And that what I would say would be like a misunderstanding of the claim that I that I make in the book and the claim that most of the people who talk about black theology um, make. So you kind of have to start at a different place. And what you would actually want to say is something like two, two related ideas. And these are both important. The first one is skin color impacts how we're treated in this country i feel like nobody would deny this idea sure. and that these skin the, the way that we're treated anti-black racism gives rise to certain theological questions that we wrestle with um related to like what it means to be a christian in, in america and so we bring those questions to the bible and the theological process so one of the ways that i explain it to my friends is like it's a common statement to 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 hear christianity is the white man's religion and so I had to come to the Bible and I asked the question, well, is Christianity actually really the white man's religion or is it for everyone? But I don't know any of my white colleagues who have been told their whole life, Christianity is only for black people. And then they have to kind of open the Bible and say, is it possible for me to be in this text? And so when I talk about African-American Bible reading, I mean, the kinds of questions that our experiences bring cause us to bring to the biblical text. And since the Black experience in America is not uniform, but since there's clusters of experiences, we tend to answer or ask similar types of questions. And sometimes we come to similar answers. So for example, we may have all asked the question, well, are there African peoples in the Bible who are drawn to the worship of, of both the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? Yes, you see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jewish yep. and the, in the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament. You see these accounts of Africans who are being part of God's people. So you, oh, here, here's an example. And so African-American biblical interpretation or or is, is one way of talking about the ways in which African-American peoples have asked certain questions of the Bible and the ways which you've answered it. Another way that I talk about it is the issue of theodicy. Um, it's, the issue of theodicy isn't unique to the Black experience, but because um, at least African-Americans in North America, Christianity and slavery were, 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 were kind of linked together at the beginning. And so one of the first questions we have to answer is, well, how does it, what does it mean to be a part of a Christian tradition where the people who also pro profess that tradition tradition are, are committing real evil? And that creates a real question. Well, how can you believe in God and do these things? So the issue of theodicy is a uniquely pressing question as it relates to the Black theological tradition. So this, there's and ways- for those and yeah. for those listeners who don't, right. don't know the word theodicy, yes, that theodicy is the problem of evil. Sorry. <laughs> right. No, no, you're good. Uh, you're good. Um, and then so like on one level, um, this isn't terribly controversial. 
because the everyone understands they're like different cultures bring different questions to the bible right. so it's not it's not the idea that um skin produces readings skin <laughs> produces experiences that leads to questions that you then bring to the text and then you wrestle with them really the second cool. way that this is important to really think about and this one is is like i would even like push this one even harder it is simply the case that um in america at different points in its history both at the during the abolitionist movement, during the civil rights movement, and even during the present moment, there were theological debates that broke out. And mm -hmm. the theological debates broke out between white what, what is best described as a white church and a black church. Yep. For example, the African Methodist Episcopal Church was started when people were, um, um, Allen and other people were, were in the front praying. They're literally picked up and carried out of white churches. And they decided the only way they can worship God was in black churches. And they're in black churches making certain arguments around the end of slavery and around the worth of black people that were opposed by white churches. So a black church is actually a historical phenomenon that has moved through history and made different theological debates. You can pick up the exact same argument when you get to something like the civil rights movement, the letter from the Birmingham jail. Martin Luther King is writing to the seven white pastors from the black church. And so when you talk about Black biblical interpretation, it is actually talking about a historical community that read the Bible in community and come to certain answers, and they pose those answers in opposition to white churches that had different answers. And so to erase Black biblical interpretation would in effect to be a, a, erased Black churches and say there were never these communities of people who read the Bible differently. Now, one of the reasons that is really odd, and, and forgive me, this might be the whole interview. <laughs> That's okay. this, this is really odd is that everybody recognizes that there's different cultures who have contributed things to the theological pro pro process, right? So we, we talk a lot about German theology. And no one ever says, well, you can't have German theology. Or we'll talk about British theology or different or British evangelicalism, which is different than like Australian evangelicalism, which is different than North American evangelicalism, or even to be an evangelical in Germany, just is meant to be a Protestant. Right. right <laughs> and so right. we understand that like different cultures have different theological traditions. I, I should tell people you could go out and I don't know if anyone ever got hate mail, but you can write books that said, you know, how the Irish saved civilization or how Irish theolo the, the Irish theological tradition, and no one has to answer this question. But I write a book that says Black people have a contribution, then people kind of lose their mind. Hmm. And I always want to ask the question, well, then why does an African-American having a contribution and a culture distinct from the Irish, the Germans, and the Brits? And that's because people think that there's only one American culture. And that dominant American culture are the only ones who can contribute to the theological process. But the truth is, that's not the case. There is something called the Black Church that has a habit of reading the Bible that they passed on down that we're now offering to the church for their own blessing and growth. Yeah, that's really that's really helpful and uh, and a better way to state the question than do people of color read the Bible differently than white people? Right? It's yeah. not the skin color; it's the experience, right? Yeah. Because of this. And then but, the history that and the history. created different oh, yeah, traditions yeah. within different cultures and traditions within yeah. you know American Christianity even yeah, yeah and and I and I think that I think that it's, I'm assuming that the wonderful people who who are at Luther Seminary and who've been attached to it can just simply recognize 
when you're reading German theology, there are elements of German culture that are inextricably linked to it. Oh, One of sure. the things that, yes. that, that Luther, like Luther's Reformation is impossible without the fact that what he was seeing in Germany and what he was seeing in Germany around the indulgence and the other things both distorted and clarified things for him. And had Luther been somewhere else, then he might have had a totally different theological tradition. And everybody who tells the story of the Reformation tells that story. Luther's sitting in Germany. He's seeing these things. And we now know that what Luther was seeing in Germany was not what was going on everywhere. Right. And that what Calvin was seeing in Geneva was not what's going on everywhere. So we all actually recognize right. how location and experience influence theology. But the important part about that is that it doesn't mean that it's false. Right. It doesn't mean that it's false. It just means that like you contextualize and you understand these are Luther's strengths and weaknesses. This is how Germany helped him. This is how Germany hindered him. Here's how the legacy of the debates that were going on in Germany at the time influenced what he had to say. And here's how different theological traditions came to different conclusions. And so all of the, I mean, like it's impossible to talk about the story of the British Reformation without talking about the historical location there. So I think that we understand it. We just right. deny it to black people. Yeah, that's so you've gotten pushback on. I, I mean, you're what you're saying, all theology is contextual, right? We're all responding out of our experiences and may emphasize or see different things, yeah, uh, depending on our, our social location. But it surprises me that you've gotten pushback about that. Yeah, I think maybe it shouldn't. Maybe I'm just naive. I don't know. No, I don't. I, I don't well, I didn't expect it either. <laughs> <laughs> um, I oh, think, fun. I think, I think that, um, because we have this, I, well, there's a lot of things if you actually want to go beneath it. Yeah. One of the things is that because of the legacy of slavery in the United States, the word black has to actually play two roles. Hmm. So black in America refers both to functionally African-American culture that was separated from African culture by the transatlantic slave trade. So there is like black as it relates to African-Americans is both an ethnicity and a race. Right, it's doing both of these things at the same yeah. time. Yep. So when people hear, when black people often say black, we're actually talking about both about our culture. So when I say African-American biblical interpretation, I'm talking about the, the rise that goes from a different culture, um, from our culture to the world. And when people hear African-American, they hear that different than German. Mm -hmm. they, and, and so they don't recognize for a variety of reasons that African-American or black refers to both the race and the culture. I see. They reduce it to a skin color. Right. But African-American or black in the United States refers to the culture that we created basically from um, the, the, the collision of what we remember from our African culture and what we made for ourselves here. And so when I talk about that, that seems to threaten people because they want to believe that there is no kind of American culture, that we're all kind of colorblind and you all participate in this thing in the same way. And highlighting that difference um, is somehow hindering process, progress. And to me, it's actually only articulating reality. Okay. African-Americans have a culture. Yeah. That culture has reflected upon what it means to follow God. We've, we've, offered, we've written those things down. We've offered it to the world. And in that distinction, we're no different than Germans, and we're no different than the Irish, we're no different than Kenyans. And so I think that people just don't often want to grant African Americans a genuine culture, hmm. music, food, and, and theological reflection, and all of those things to go along with it. And it's always a threat, huh. instead of a gift.
Yeah. And it's a threat because it is true. African-American culture in a lot of ways challenges the dominant myths of wider culture, majority culture. And so we're the ones who say, well, like, for example, one of the, here's like a a perfect example. When I was growing up, when we talked about slavery, I would just talk, oh, they were all men of their times. How could they possibly know? You know, everybody was just enslaving people. It was just what you did. And I thought, well, like, maybe they never heard. Well, if you go back and you read the abolitionist literature, like, they're all saying, you can't do this. This is like, they knew. knew. (laughs) They knew. (laughs) And they knew because Black people told them. Yeah. You know, so you have something like Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. He's saying, like, your prime moment of celebration is rank hypocrisy. Well, then that is a legacy that, that, that is then passed down through in the African-American Christian tradition, this habit of calling attention to American hypocrisy. So right. in some sense, like our culture and our theological reflection, although a part of American culture, is also a, a, a critique is embedded deeply within it by a very existence. And the people want that critique to go away or it, they want it to um, be pushed aside or diminished in the sense of the, like, instead of telling this grand narrative. So I think that it's really, really hard for people to, to, intr- to trust black people in particular to talk about God, because the way that we talk about God and the way that we talk about America um, sometimes causes some of those cherished myths into question. Mm-hmm. That, wow, yeah, that, that really, makes sense. That really makes well sense. said. What, I, go ahead, go ahead, Catherine. Well, I was just going to ask about the the subtitle to your book, right? Uh, African American Biblical Interpretation as an exercise in hope. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask. Talk about hope. Too. Like, what <laughs> is that? Where you were going, Kate? That's exactly what I was going to ask. So, so it's funny. Speaker. It's funny because um, a lot of people who don't read the book read the title, "Reading While Black," and they kind of go, "I know what he's going to say," so I hate it, and they just push it to the side. <laughs> And, but the actual heart of the book is not the title, it's the subtitle. Yeah. yeah. African-American biblical interpretation. But you can't put that as the title of the book because nobody would buy it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like you can't have a 15 word book title. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what I wanted to say is the question that was driving um, the book for me was like, how did my ancestors like make sense of what it meant to be a Christian in a world that had done so much evil to them. Yeah. And, and had often based that on- Yeah, based it on the Bible. Scripture. Yeah, yeah. And I remember um, the book was written kind of starting, the, the first hint to the book was starting somewhere around 2015. It was written from 2015 through to like 2017. I think that might be maybe 2018. The pandemic ruined my- It's all a blur. Like, time, my, time is no longer- But I remember yeah. during the um, the protest leading into, because a lot of Black people were dying. There was a lot of mm-hmm. stuff about police violence in that summer leading into the election of what became 2016 election. And I remember some black people who were protesting, who were saying, this is not your civil, your parents' civil rights movement. We're going to do things differently. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, because I grew up and Martin Luther King was my hero. Yeah. And the, the Southern Christian Leadership Council that led the civil rights movement was my hero, my heroes. And I said, well, they actually thought that God was a help and not a hindrance to the work of liberation. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I wonder where that idea came from. Like, why did... Um, my ancestors find like how did they do it 
So part of the book was me attempting to find out what they did. And when I went back and I looked and I started reading a lot, I read a lot of slave narratives and the stories and early African-American sermons and the accounts of the, um, the formation of historically black denominations. And I found that for my ancestors, in contrast to what you often hear in the media or in the de descriptions of Christianity, that for them, Bible reading was a source of hope. Hmm. In other words, when they were pushed against the wall, they read the book of the Exodus. And they said, oh, God is on the side of the liberation of the slaves. Just to read the Bible and expect some kind of positive outcome for my ancestors was really important to them. And so I tried to articulate that same kind of ethos in the book that I wrote, where I tried to say, well, no, historically, and this isn't the only strand, there's tons of strands in the African American, Afro-pessimism, there's all kinds of other things, the people who reject the Bible in the Black tradition. But for a particular strand of it, or a significant strand of it, the Bible was a source of hope. And I use the language of exercise, because like, I don't like to exercise. <laughs> <laughs> and like, but you'd have to do it as a discipline, you know, yeah. even when it's, I live here in Chicago, in Chicago, suburbs of Chicago, and sometimes it's cold and it's windy, and you would just rather just sit at, sit by the fire and, and eat chocolate or something, but you got to just get outside and exercise, and so I don't mean it in this, in this sense of like hope is easy to come by, but the discipline of reading the Bible and hoping that God will speak a word to you is itself an exercise in hope, mm -hmm. and so I wanted to inspire um, other people to do the same. That's that's really helpful. And you're right. I mean, in any struggle, right, any struggle for justice, for liberation, uh, you need hope right? Yeah. or because it's really easy to give in to despair. Yeah, I wish I, I probably should have saved both the, the title and the subtitle. I had like two good book titles that I shoved together. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I wish I kept the line exercise and hope for another book. Cause like, but, so in other words, I think that part of what it means for me to be a Christian has to be because all that you see or not all that you see a lot of what you see is depressing yeah yeah so there has to be some confidence in god in what he's already done right. to give you the ability to face a future that is unknown to you trusting that god knows that future and he rewards your faithfulness and this is probably the last thing i'll say about that one of the other things that was really challenging to me as a as a reader of these early texts and in the early african-american text is how they describe what god was doing versus how we describe it in retrospect in other words a lot of people will say well what has god ever done for black people like he's not done enough look there's still these things that are going on but when i read the actual stories themselves they were saying look at what god has actually just done in other words they saw the liberation uh, from slavery, not as an act of um, government, but an act of God. Yeah. They saw each progress that they made at different points in their history um, as acts of God. And so for me to look back and say they were wrong in saying that God was at work in their lives felt to me disingenuous. Yeah. So in other words, I felt it incumbent upon me to respect their own testimony. The same thing in the civil rights movement. There's a sense in which it's articulated at the time that God is spurring, stirring up the spirit of the Negro people, as they would say, to no yeah. longer put up with these, um, these kind of 
um, oppressions. And all of, and so many of these movements began with prayer meetings before and they would march after that. Okay. So they claimed that God was inspiring them and carrying them along. One of the subtitles in one of the chapters is um, um, they're asking one of the women who participated in the Montgomery um, bus boycott. They said, how do you feel? He said, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. Hmm. Hmm. So she was saying that like her soul was at hmm. peace because she knew that God was carrying her along. And so I just wanted to, 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 to take that testimony seriously and say, well, it's not easy for me to set aside their hope that they seen, they claim God was, was, was answering their prayers. And that challenged me to continue to go forward and hope even when I can't see the future, trusting in God in the same way that my ancestors did. Sorry, Katie, were you going to say something? No, go, go ahead. Uh, that's, uh, that's beautiful. I think um, the, the, the exercise in hope, right, that's so needed uh, today. I mean, in the midst of, as we're dealing with conflict in Europe and, uh, and the yeah. threat of, uh, of war and, and climate yeah. catastrophe. I mean, I find my students, yeah, particularly the young white students, are sometimes just in despair about all of that and especially climate uh, catastrophe. And I yeah. understand that. And yet I wanna say, you know, part of being a Christian is having hope, right? Yeah, now forgive me. I always get these, these, um, Kate, these cases mixed up in my head, but it's Dred Scott, the one that's, that's done on the, on the eve of the civil war. Is that correct? The, the, the Dred Scott decision. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So Dred Scott, I think it's like 1857. It could be somewhere, somewhere in there, somewhere in the 1850s. And it was like the end of kind of the abolitionist movement from the perspective of the Supreme Court said in, in the Supreme Court, there is no, no, no right that an African-American has to which a white man is, is, is required to respect. So in other words, like you just lost, like the abolition movement is over, like the fugitive slave laws can be enforced anywhere. And an entire movement had lost. Like you can't lose anymore than fighting to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says no. Yep. If Brown versus Board of Education is this huge win, Dred Scott is this, this catastrophic loss. Yep. And there was no path forward. There was no meeting. In, a, in other words, I don't think we felt the despair of Dred Scott. Because we look at it and we say, okay, but within 10 years of Dred Scott, the Civil War is over and, and the third, you know, the slavery's ended. Mm -hmm. Well, then how did the people who experienced Dred Scott, because they didn't stop doing abolitionist work, okay. how did they go forward after having experienced a catastrophic loss? They went forward having experienced a catastrophic loss because they felt like their cause was righteous and just. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what it means to be a Christian is to go forward even when there is no clear path to victory in the way that we can see it, trusting in the providence of God. And I just think about what it would have meant to be like a, a abolitionist who saw, who, who experienced Dred Scott, like um, um, uh, Frederick Douglass, yep. but who lived to see the other end of slavery. And there was no way that you could have seen those things happening. Within four years, the nation will be at war. And so, and that doesn't mean that everything is solved by war. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is like, sometimes you just lose, right? Or sometimes you win and the win isn't what you think it is. So we, we the, the other example is you told the story of 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. And we hear this story like, oh, 
segregation is over. You won. Well, no. There's 25 years of massive resistance that happens in the South, but they refuse to integrate schools. Right. So even when you win and you can kind of see victory, yeah. you see all the people who undermine it. And so it's rare in, in as a Christian, when you're going forward through life, that you can see like what is around the corner. One of the things that I always say, like I say to people all of the time, a lot of people got interested in racial reconciliation um, after kind of 2016 um, and all of the stuff. Oh, we need to find out how, but you know what? It's a little late then because now the crisis is here yep. and, and it's unfolding. But if you had started 25 years ago, simply because it was true that God wanted us to be together, then when the culture shifted and these things are polarized, you already have a community. Yeah. And so you can't predict the future. You can't predict the future. All that you can do is live faithfully in the moment. Um, and so I think that sometimes we can only have hope and we can see the victory. <laughs> and I feel like that's not it. One of the, this, and I'll stop talking about this, but this actually gets me excited. I wrote an article for last Easter um, for um, um, the New York Times where I talked about this. The women who came to the tomb did not come to the tomb expecting a resurrection. They were just engaging in a religious ritual. This is what you do to honor the dead. Yeah. And on the way to do this kind of perfunctory religious thing, because they didn't stop, they kept the Sabbath, right? right? We don't think about the, these women and how much of religious history it's hinged upon these women who have no reason to do it. The person who they hoped in the most had died. If it was me, I'm eating bacon sandwiches. Forget the Sabbath. I'm like, I despair. <laughs> I'm, right? I, I, I'm, going, I'm going the next day. Let's just go ahead and bury them now. Why care about the Sabbath? But they yeah. keep the Sabbath. And because they kept the Sabbath, they're there at the right time to see the resurrection. And so sometimes, even when you can't see the reason why, if you keep going in faith, God may surprise you because he's running ahead of you. And one of the other things that I say, forgive me, I'm like super sympathy for Judas. This might be another weird thing. Don't call me a heretic. <laughs> but what separates Judas from Peter? Part of it is that Peter is alive. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Do you really believe that it had Judas, like if you think of all the reconciliations in the Bible, <laughs> Jesus is forgiving of Peter is tremendously powerful because Peter has denied Jesus three times, but Jesus welcomes Peter back in. Do you not believe that had Judas somehow managed to stay alive until Easter? There's like one of the great stories in the history of Christianity. Isn't Jesus forgiving the person who betrayed him? Hmm. But, but, but Judas died. He killed himself. It's so one of the things I say to people is sometimes resistance is to stay, keep living. Right. Keep living, keep moving long enough for God's mercy to catch up to you. Yeah. And you can't always see it. And one of the, one of the hard parts, to, and I'm saying it's easy, one of the hard parts to, to do is to move through the darkness, trusting in the light, even when you can't see it clearly. That is so beautiful. Uh, I, that, I've heard this in the African-American church, this phrase related to a story from the Old Testament, right? The Red Sea. God makes a way where there is no way. Yeah, a way out of no way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, he makes a way out of no way. Yes, he is. That, Just don't keep me moving forward. Just keep, keep moving, moving forward. forward. Keep moving forward. That's it. That's all you can do sometimes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Issa McCullough, we, we've just been uh, blessed by your presence and just delighted to talk with you. Thank you for taking Thank you. the time. 
Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Well, uh, and thank you to our listeners for listening to this episode of the Enter the Bible podcast. You can get more resources and commentaries and videos and reflection at at enterthebible.org. Please share this podcast with your friends as well. Uh, And thanks for joining us. Take care.